morning. How are you? Good to see you this morning. Welcome to Advent here at Chelton. So back in the 1950s, which is going to be a surprise to you, but I was not alive for that. Um, but back in the 1950s, there was a scientist named Kurt Richter, and he worked at Johns Hopkins University. He did a really strange experiment. It's an experiment that involves buckets full of water, rats, in order to show the power of hope. Now, if this experiment bothers you, please don't get mad at me. I did not conduct the experiment. I'm not endorsing the experiment. But here's what he did. He would take rats and put them in buckets of water to see how long they would survive until they drowned. Don't get, don't get mad at me, all right? I'm not endorsing it. I'm not. But the point of what he does is actually really profound. So he puts them in the bucket to see how long they would last, and the average is 15 minutes. They would survive for 15 minutes before they would drown. But in a follow-up experiment, he put the same types of rats, average ordinary rats, in the buckets until they were on the verge of going under. And then he would take that rat out of the water, dry it off, let it catch its breath, breathe, and then he put it back in the water. And those rats swam for an average of 60 hours. That's two and a half days compared to the first 15 minutes, which they would last without that. And in his conclusion as to why they could swim 240 times longer after being rescued out of that water and given a break is this. He said this in his conclusion. After the elimination of hopelessness, the rats do not die. To switch that into the positive, hope of rescue gives strength and endurance to the weary in the moment. And that thing that is true of this, these rats and these experiments 70-some years ago is this true point for us as well. This is what we've been talking about this Advent series and will all the way through Christmas. Hope for the weary world. This is what Christ has come to bring. If you're not familiar with the idea of Advent... If that's a foreign word to you, Advent simply means arrival. And for Christians, we celebrate two Advents, two arrivals of God coming to earth. And the first we look back at, that's where we are right now, looking back 2,000 years ago that God the Son came to earth as a human, was conceived in his mother Mary by the Holy Spirit, and was given the name Jesus because his mission was to forgive his people, to deliver his people, to bring redemption and forgiveness. That's the first arrival of God to this planet. And yet we sit waiting for the second advent, the second arrival, because this little baby grew up. He lived a life that was in perfect submission to the Father. And having lived that perfect life, offered himself in place of his sinful, rebellious people to redeem us, to buy us out of our darkness, out of our, uh, the, the sin that we have chosen over him. 
He did it to atone for us, to make payment for our sin, offering his life in place of ours in the cosmic court of justice. But the story of Easter, which you can never think about Christmas without thinking about Easter and vice versa, the two are connected in one because the story of Easter is that death was not strong enough to hold him, that he rose victorious on the third day, never to die again, and that one day the risen Lord Jesus will return to this planet again, the second arrival, the second advent. And when he does, he's going to renew the universe. He's going to judge those who are alive and those who have died. And he's going to destroy Satan and his minions of sin and death forever and live with us as his people on a new earth. That's the story of the Bible. You tell the story of the Bible in those two advents. And for us, we sit in the middle of those two advents. We look back on Jesus' arrival the first time, and we celebrate that every year. But that first arrival is meant to, to cause in our hearts a growing longing for his second arrival, where what he began at his first coming will be completed at his second coming. And what I love about the Bible is that it never pretends like life in between those two advents is a walk in the park. It never pretends that life will be easy. In fact, Jesus actually tells us you should expect trouble. Just as in general, and in particular if you are a follower of Christ, you should expect trouble in this world. He says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We live in a world right now where we can control so many things. Some of you could pull out your, your phones right now and change the temperature in your house, right? You, you, you live in a microwave society where you can have what you want in the moment. And so something about living in that context for our whole lives has given us this false understanding that life should just be simple and easy. And then when trouble hits, we're totally caught off guard. And then the trouble is compounded, because not only am I facing this trouble, but I'm facing this emotional, mental distress because I thought life was going to be easy, and it's not. But the Bible never pretends that. In fact, even in the passage that Festus read for us this morning, even youth grow tired and weary. Even the young, even the vibrant, even the ones that are most able to bear up under it will eventually become tired and weary. And even if I don't know every one of you in the room, which I don't, and I don't know your exact circumstances, I know that two things are true about you, and they both are causes for you feeling tired and weary, and that's that you are both a sinner and a sufferer. And you're those two things simultaneously. You are a sinner. You are born a descendant of Adam, and as a result... The bend of your heart, the drawl of your heart is not to love and trust the good and perfect sovereign creator God of this universe. It's to supplant yourself in his seat. To be the, your own God of your own little universe and just a newsflash, you're a terrible God. Rather than trust what God says is good and what God says is evil, we want to define what is good and evil. And that, 
takes us all the way back to our ancestors, Adam and Eve. The very first sin was them saying, I'll decide. I'll be my own God. Where we take God's gifts and we don't take him as the creator. One pastor named Eric Raymond said it this way. I love how he said it. He said that sin is the restless pursuit of satisfaction, fulfillment, and happiness outside of God. Which has a devastating and debilitating impact of making us more empty, more tired, more hungry, and more angry. So part of your weariness is because you are a sinner. And you look for life outside of God, which leaves you emptier and thirstier and more tired. But not only do you have your own issues, you live in a room, at least right now, you're sitting in a room full of sinners. Your family is full of sinners. Your marriage is full, is, is two sinners. You, fill in the blank. You work with sinners. You live with sinners. Which means that it doesn't even have to be your individual sin that brings about weariness, but it's the sin of others that impacts you. Whether it's an active abuse or hurt, or it's passive neglect, whether it's hurtful or careless words, or if it's some actions, we are constantly weary and tired because of what we've experienced from others. But not all sin necessarily is corresponded, or I'm sorry, not all tiredness, weariness, is connected directly to your sin or someone else's. Sometimes it's just because you're a human living in a broken world. You're a sufferer. And usually those two overlap so that even in your suffering, sin has its tentacles wrapped around that in some way and impacts the way that you experience that suffering. Sometimes we're just tired from the fact that you are a small and finite human living in a very big, out-of-control, broken, and cursed world. Because when humanity rejected God, the whole creation broke. So that we were made from dust and our bodies slowly returned to dust. And every time you dust that mantle, it ought to be a little reminder. Because most of the dust in your house is your dead skin cells. That's weird and creepy, but it's true. You're literally turning to dust. We get weary from the nonstop schedule. We just run out of energy. I don't care how young or vibrant you are, you just run out of energy. Sometimes it's our circumstances. Maybe you, man, as I look around this room, I know many of these stories are true. Maybe you're caring for an aging parent. Or maybe you are the aging parent. And you're just weary of that constant care. Maybe your health is deteriorating and you're, you're, you're getting treatments for some sort of cancer. Maybe anxiety has just this strong grip and it's exhausting just to get out of bed every single day. Maybe depression feels like it has just a stranglehold on your life. Loneliness and grief, which often gets accented at this time of year. Just long for a spouse. You just long for a child. You just long for that spouse or child to be back with you. Right? The reality is we are weary people. Financial problems, challenging work situations, or lack of work. Maybe you have kids that just don't stop asking questions all day. Or maybe you're on the other side and you just long to have a child and you would answer every one of their questions all day long, if but you could just have a child, right? The 
any end of the spectrum. All of life is wearying, and it doesn't even have to do with you. Just turn the news on. Anybody tired of watching the news? We are easily overwhelmed. I have my own combination of things. Yours is unique. Your combination of your own personal sin, your own personal suffering, is your own recipe for weariness. And we experience that. Even if you don't feel it heavily right now, you have or you will. This is just a reality for us. And such is true for us in our day, but it's also true for the people in Isaiah's day. This Advent season, we are looking at the book of Isaiah to see how God promised to the people in Isaiah's day, to the people of Israel, before the birth of Christ, the promise of hope. Hope for a world that is weary and always has been since sin came and broke everything. And we're dropping into, especially here, if you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 40, we're dropping into the the middle of a well-crafted book, right? Isaiah's not just thrown together, you know, like a mess. It's crafted for us. And we're dropping into chapter 40, which is actually the turning point of the book. Chapters 1 to 39 has a focus on the past and the present, in the ways that Israel and and surrounding nations have said no thank you to God as their king. They don't want him to be their lord and ruler. And as a result, God says, if you don't want me, I will give you over to the desires of your heart. I'll give you a world in which you don't have me as your king and you don't have my divine protection and you don't have me caring for you. I'm going to give you over. And when he does that, the nation of Israel is overwhelmed and all those around them by the big bully of their day, people of Babylon. They're taken into exile. And they're conquered just like all the other nations. Their sin... The sin of their ancestors has brought about this suffering, taken from their homes. The descriptions of exile, the descriptions of siege of the, of the ancient world are horrific. And some of them were born into that. But, chapter 40 is a turn. If you just even scroll or look up on your Bible there to the beginning of chapter 40, There's a different tone. It starts this way. Chapter 40 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. And the tone of the book of Isaiah moves from woe to hope. From judgment to hope. It moves from talking about the sin of people and the brokenness and the rejection of him to God's ability to restore what was broken and renew it entirely, and more importantly, his desire to do so. It's one thing if someone's able to. The next question must be, does he want to? The focus moves from the past and present failures to God's planned future for his people and the world that he has created. Just a few minutes ago, we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And in our day right here, we can totally relate to the lines in the song that we sang, to the experience of ransom captive Israel. 
Israel in exile, who mourned in lowly, lonely exile here until the Son of God appeared. In the same way that Israel waited in suffering, in bondage to sin, pain, that's exactly where we sit, isn't it? Where sorrow is everywhere. And what happens when you go through sorrow and you're feeling both the effects of your sin and just the effects of living in a broken world, that weariness brings us to the response that Israel and Judah give in verse 27. Look at that with me if you would. Why do you complain? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? You ever been in that spot? Where you look and you go, everything I'm going through, the only solution could possibly be that God doesn't see it. He has to be looking the other way. Or if he is looking, he must not care. I think that if every one of us were honest, we've had multiple moments of that. We've looked at life and felt he doesn't care or he doesn't see the natural human response because inside there's part of us that says because if I were God I would not let this happen I would do something about it I would change it and again this is the temptation that has been from the beginning if I were God my way is hidden from the Lord my cause is disregarded by my God and yet here is the most amazing thing to me I just want to ask how do you hear God's tone in this passage this is, the, this is why texting sometimes is really hard because you send a text and you're like, oh, that wasn't what I meant. That was, my tone was different. We're reading Scripture that depending on how you perceive who God is will sometimes change how you read this because you could read this. Why are you complaining, Jacob? Why do you say this, Israel? Kind of like the way you do with your kids when you're really frustrated. What's your problem? Or... It could be more of a plead, uh, pleading. Hey, why do you complain, Israel? Israel, why do you say that I'm not with you? Here's what God does. This is the beautiful thing about who God is, is that God is not scared by your questions and your doubts. He's just not. This is very much like a lament psalm. And if you know the book of Psalms, the majority of the Psalms written in it, which is God saying to his people, sing this to me. Talk to me this way. The majority of those Psalms start off something like this. Where are you? Do you are you paying attention, God? Do you see me? No, you abandoned me. I know you did. You always do that. God permits... God tells his people, go ahead and talk to me that way. Because God is not as insecure as you and I are. Somebody does that to me, all of a sudden, you've wounded me. How dare you? Because your doubts and questions about me affect me. They highlight my insecurities. But our thoughts and feelings don't change the reality of God's nearness or his farness to us. Our thoughts, our feelings, our doubts don't affect his goodness, his character, who he is as the sovereign ruler of this universe. 
He's not scared. In fact, the lament psalms teach us, this passage shows us, God actually invites us, tell me, be honest, but do it with me. Come to me. Bring me your fears. Bring me your confusion. Don't run from me. Bring it to me. And what's amazing to me about what God does is when God answers, he doesn't go at the questions that you might come in with. He does this with Job. If you're familiar with the story of Job, the story of immense suffering and a man who is trying to reconcile why has this happened. And for 30-some chapters, Job is like, where's God? I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to present my case. It's going to be great. I'm going to get an answer. And he says that for chapter after chapter after chapter. And eventually God shows up. And God doesn't say, okay, go ahead, give me your case. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me explain to you why I'm doing this. He doesn't do that. He just says, let me remind you who I am. Let me start not with your suffering, but let me start with who I am. And you see the exact same thing here in this passage. Do you not know and have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He starts by reminding his people in the midst of their weariness, you're weary, but let me remind you who I am, which is what you and I actually need. You think you need questions answered. You think you need answers why. That is a never-ending journey. What you really need is a confidence and a hope in who your God is and that he is for you. And that's the hope. That's the hope that Isaiah reveals to us about God. And it's a hope that has impact on your present and on your future. Let's look at what I mean by that. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Of course they have. They're the people of Israel for crying out loud. They all memorize these types of verses. They have pieces of his word, of his instruction, memorized and written in their hearts and on their doorposts and some of them, not all of them maybe. <laughs> but of course they know who the Lord is. Do you not know? Yes. Have you not heard? Yes. What's the point? In the moments of weariness, in the moments when your sin and your suffering just feel like unbearable weights that you can't survive under. What you need is not new information. You need to be reminded of something you already know. Do you not know? Yes. Do you not? Have you not heard? Yes. But I forget so quickly because when my weariness is just right here, I can't see anything around it. And all I see is my circumstances. And friends, can I tell you as a side here, this is why church is not optional. This is why being a part of the community of faith is not an add-on to your life, but it's a core essential part because you're prone to wander and you forget, and so do I, which is why I need you and you need me and you need each other to be able to look at each other and say, do you not know and have you not heard? Yes, but thank you. Thank you for reminding me who God is. This is why we hide Scripture deep in our hearts so that when moments of darkness come, the Spirit reaches in and deep, deeply in our soul and brings something to mind that you have hidden away in your heart. 
reminding you of what's true. Memorize God's word. Meditate on his truth that reminds us who God is. But like we said, this is great. God doesn't grow tired. He doesn't grow weary. That's nice for him. What good is that for me? I'm tired. I'm weary. So what? Great question. Chapter 40, verse 29. That God, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And this is something that is unlike broken humanity like you and me. When we've got the leg up on somebody, we use that to our advantage. You use your wealth to become wealthier. You use your power to make your life more comfortable. And that is not like our God. Our God uses his power, uses his strength, not to squash those who are weak, but to give strength, to give endurance to those who are tired and worn down. This shows you his heart. And as God gives his strength to weary people, sometimes, but not usually, he changes the circumstances. Usually what he does is gives you strength in the moment to endure, to bear up under that, to persevere under the trial that you are experiencing. Because it's those very trials that keep you dependent on him, which is his whole heart for you in the first place. To try to find life and satisfaction and meaning outside of him is called hell. And he doesn't want to give you that. And so he may allow and bring trials into your life to help you realize the truth all along is that you have been desperately dependent on him and needing him every step of the way, even in the good moments. This, though, is the present, the hope for your present, is that if you feel weary, if you feel weak, you have a God who says, I want to give you strength. I want to sustain you. And you feel like you're drowning in a bucket. You have a God who says, I want to care for you. I want to give you the endurance to persevere into what you've experienced now. To be a Christian does not mean, and this passage is not a promise that come to Jesus and everything will be smooth sailing. But it's an opportunity to experience joy and peace in the middle of choppy water. That's what God offers. James chapter 1 says that we as his followers are to consider all the trials of every kind that you go through as pure joy which is a little bit funny to me because it's usually not my immediate reaction. Oh, that was, yay, <sighs> right? No, it's usually when we go through tri trials of any kind, small, big, joy is the first thing attacked, which is why James says to consider it pure joy when you go through trials. Why? Because it's fun and, and I love being tired and worn out. No, but because it's an opportunity for your faith to be refined and as your faith is refined, it develops perseverance in you, which leads to maturity in Christ and strength and trust in who he is. It's an opportunity for joy. And what a testimony to the world around us who goes through the same trials that you do. Same trials. And as a follower of Christ, as you experience not this like plaster a smile on your face, I'm okay, But as you, as you experience a relying on the Lord, as you find yourself, as we'll see in just a moment, putting your hope in the Lord, 
as he renews you inwardly and gives you his strength, not in a fake it kind of way, but in a genuine way, what a testimony to the world around us. What a testimony to your neighbors who see your coworkers, who see your suffering, your life, your challenges up front, but see that there is a peace and a joy and a settledness as you walk through that. You will get asked questions. And what a beautiful moment to share the hope of Jesus. The hope that says, my God is giving me strength right now, but that's not the end. There's hope for the future as well. Chapter 40, verse 30 to 31, tells us that even youth grow tired and weary, and even young men stubble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. You may have a version that says those who wait on the Lord Or you may have that tucked away in a different version. To hope and to wait are synonyms. They are the same. But biblical hope is not like, cross your fingers, I really hope this works out. I hope I get this present for Christmas. But I don't know. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is I hope the sun will come up tomorrow. It's a confident looking ahead to what is certain. It's in the middle of a long sleepless night that says the sun will rise. Hope is not necessarily in the Bible tied to a circumstance. You don't hope that something happens, but you hope in something. There is an object of your hope. And that's why Isaiah says, those who hope in the Lord. Hope is a synonym for trust, for confidence, for putting all your eggs in the basket, pushing all your chips in the middle of the table on one thing or person. Because when you are weary and you are tired, when you're stressed, in those moments, pay attention to your life. Pay attention to the things that you go to, the people you rely on, the people you squash with your expectations because they're not strong enough to bear up under that. Those will be the places and the people that you're actively putting your hope in. And those get revealed under stressful moments. Do you put your hope in your ability to control and manipulate your world, effectively putting your hope in your own strength? Do you put your hope in in pleasure and the distractions, and so you just dive into a video game world, fantasy world, or, or social media and internet just to endlessly distract yourself? Do you go to the fridge an inordinate amount of times, have a little more alcohol than you probably should, Do you go to pleasures of sex and food? You're putting your hope in something actively here. Throw yourself into work so you can mean something to someone. If you pay attention to those initial reactions, you'll start to realize where your practical hope is being placed. And oftentimes, we're placing it in something that is very fleeting and very temporary, which is why... Isaiah says, those who put their hope in the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends and the earth, the one who is outside of the created order, why put your hope in something that was created, that lives inside the broken created order, when the opportunity is to put your hope in the creator, the one who is sovereign outside of that, who needs nothing to sustain him. He is and will be and always has been. The opportunity is to put your hope in Him. 
To wait on the Lord is not simply mark time, but it's to put confident expectation in his ability and desire to care for you. In other words, don't run ahead of him, don't run away from him, but run to him is what it means to put your hope in the Lord. And what does that look like practically? You can talk all this great, yep, 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 that sounds great. What does that look like to put my hope in the Lord? With almost every, applica- almost every passage, the application begins with a conversation between you and the Lord. It begins with prayer every time. The message of the Bible is that God is with his people and we talk to him. God, you see where I'm at, right? You see how worn I am? Did you see him? And take, unpack that for him. I am so tired. I am so weary. I'm so worn out by this, this, them, him, her, that. And I don't have it in me, God. And I know that my default is, is to go to this or this or this to try to find strength, to try to find a way to bear up under this. And God, that's stupid. I'm sorry. That food can't do it for me. That sex can't do it for me. That fill in the blank, it can't do it for me. God, I need you. And that's going to require more than 10 seconds for you to do. It can happen in 10 seconds to actively reorient your hope in God. But more often than that, it's going to take a moment of being still, of quieting yourself before the Lord, to be still before Him. Sometimes this is where fasting can come in and be a really helpful practice in your life. When you start to realize the things that you're going to knee-jerk reaction when you're tired, when you're anxious, when you're stressed, fast from that for a period of time and bring somebody else into that journey with you. I go to food, so I'm going to not eat at this period of time. Not because you're punishing yourself, but because you're actually reminding your body what your soul believes. There is no strength in life ultimately found in food or fill in the blank for you. But my true hope, my true strength, my true I'm putting my hope in you, Jesus. We said that there is a hope for the present, which is that God gives strength to his weary people now, but there's also hope for the future. You see the result coming in verse 31 to 32. I'm sorry, there is no 32. It's the second half of 31. If you look down at your Bible, you're like, "Ah, I don't think so. Next time, just call me out. End of verse 31 shows you the result. Those who, renew, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now, any time in the Bible that the people of Israel would hear something about flying like an eagle, they do not think our birds here in Philadelphia, right? It actually could be translated vultures, which is not very majestic for our American ears, but you will soar on wings like vultures. And it's kind of like, ooh, those grimy things that eat <laughs> dead air animals on the side of the road. Either way, when you hear they will soar on wings like eagles, every one of their minds goes to one event. You know what that is? The Exodus. The Exodus tells us, Exodus chapter 19, verse 4 says, 
God says to his people, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You remember how I rescued you. Then he talks in the future about another exodus, and he hints at it. There's another exodus. There's another deliverance coming yet for the people of God. The prophets use this language all the time to look back on when God redeemed and bought Israel out of slavery in Egypt to remind them that there's another deliverance coming in the future. That this where you're in right now does not have final word on your life. But there is another one who has come. A greater Moses who has come and is going to bring his people fully out of Israel or out of Egypt. See, The dilemma with the first exodus is it brought the Israelite people out of Egypt, but a lot of them took Egypt with them. They brought their their idols. They brought their distrust in who God is with them out of Egypt. There's There's a better exodus coming for the people of God because God himself, as we just sang, came to taste our sadness. This is the story of Christmas. Because when you and I are tempted to think that our ways are hidden from God, God goes, no, 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 no. I came to be like you so that I could experience the sadness of this world. So that I could experience firsthand what it means to suffer under a broken planet. And though Jesus did not sin personally, he became the sin bearer. He took on our sins and the burden, the wrath that was due him. Do us. He took it on himself. Not only so that he could bring his people out of Egypt, but he could take the Egypt out of his people. He gave himself over to the world of sin and suffering, to the point of death, but even death itself was not strong enough to have mastery over him. Because on the third day, our Savior rose again. That's our hope. That at the end of suffering, at the end of death, is resurrection. At the end of hardship is life because that's what happened to Jesus and that's what's going to happen to you if you belong to him. At his first coming, Jesus began this rescue plan, dealt the fatal blow to sin and suffering, and one day when he returns, the second advent, you and I will experience a world where he wipes every tear from our eyes, where sin and suffering are no more. If your body is falling apart, you get a new body. Even if your body's not falling apart, you get a new body. Your relationships are broken, not in the new heavens and new earth. The old order of things is gone. The new has come in full. That's your future if you belong to Jesus. Do you not know, have you not heard, there's another deliverance coming for us? And in the meanwhile, we wait. But in a weird way, like the rats who have experienced some sort of hope, Some sort of deliverance, in part, just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Because a deliverance is coming one day. And in the meanwhile, while we wait, we have a God who delights to give strength to those who are weary. That's your hope for today because of what has happened in the past and what God has promised for the future. And while you're weary and when you're tired, What you need is rest and a good meal. And the good news is that's what Jesus offers to us at the table.
Let's pray, and then we'll go to the communion table together. Father, I bless you for your kindness towards us, that you would see us in our weariness and our worn down because of our own stupidity, our own rejection of you, and just a result of being human, living in this broken world. And that, what that does to you is that brings compassion out of your heart. God, make me like you. Let me experience that, that compassion. Give me your strength. Give us your strength as your people to bear up under the weariness that is this world. Strengthen us. We are weak. And our faith is weak. Faith is hard. We look forward to the day when our faith is no longer needed because our faith will become sight. When you will come and you will wipe away everything. And Lord, we are prone to forget. Thank you for the physical reminders of the bread and the cup. That when we think that your strength isn't very real, you give us something that we can touch and taste. That your love and your strength that you offer your weary people is as real as the bread and the juice that we're about to take together. Father, we praise you. We need you. We put our hope in you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.